I appreciate you being here this morning. And uh, say, would one of you shut the door back there, please? Thanks, Lydia. And to tell you, for those who are here for the first time, uh, to tell you a little of what I'm trying to do, as you saw there in the announcement, it uh, is a Lenten series, which is appropriate from Dust You Come and from Dust You Go. And I want to talk about the art of dying. God, faith in our mortality. That is, what can we learn from Scripture and from other people about how to approach our own deaths? Come in. <coughs> That's right. Um, and I do think there's a lot to be learned from that. And, and I'm, come in. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. And, and that is, never turn your back on the door, for one thing. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, that's right. It's usually the other way. Uh, and that is, as Ecclesiastes says, there's a time to die, I mean a time to be born and a time to die. And that will be our time one of these days. That is hard to realize, I know. We all have lived long enough to know that happens to people and it will happen to us. What can we learn to prepare us to do that? And as Psalm 90 says, O Lord, teach me to number my days that I might apply wisdom therein. That is, what wisdom can we learn to approach our own death? And the scripture said there is a wisdom to be learned. It's not just fear or despair, but it's wisdom that we can learn as we approach our death. And that's what I'm trying to get at in this series here. What kind of wisdom can we learn from various people and teachings that it will help us approach our death, but also the death of our own loved ones, which probably is far, far more hard and difficult uh, to handle. But before we go into the lesson today, let's start with a prayer. A gracious Lord, from whom our life and our eternal life resides in thy hands, we appeal to thee, Lord, to lighten our minds and convict our hearts so that we might be more worthy disciples of thee, that in learning what it means to accept this gift of ours, life, but the gift that we have also, eternal life, we can better learn how to live. May your grace and peace be with us during this time. I pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. I started last time with this famous painting here of St. Jerome. What I like about it, a number of things, it's well done for one thing, but also the skull there. As he is near the ending of his days, translating the Bible into Latin, Vulgate, that is for the people to learn, I mean to read and study, he feels like his time is limited and he is numbering his days and having the skull there on the table. Now, I don't know if he literally did that, by the way. I probably ought to look and try to find out. I've never read that he actually did put a skull on the table, but it's often there in the paintings of Jerome as a reminder of his finitude, of his short span, of his mortality. And so the skull here is a metaphor to teach us to do what is important as we prepare for our own end. <clears throat> I had thought originally, I'm going to move on up to where I want to be, um, to talk about Abraham and Moses. But as I was preparing this, I got into a lot more detail with Abraham, and I'm not going to talk about the death of Moses today. But I concluded last time with these verses, which I've already alluded to, as I think constituting the essence of the wisdom that we're supposed to learn due to our faith in God as we approach our mortality. And that is, we will die. That's a fact. We can learn wisdom in the process. And whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. 
Nothing can separate us. That's from Romans 8. That chapter, as you know, starts with that great, great claim of our faith from the love of God, not even our own death. In realizing that, I think we can learn a certain kind of wisdom. And, in particular, we will learn it today with Abraham as a model. He is called the father of faith, and rightly so. What he exhibited, I think, in his life is phenomenal. He, of all people in the world, God selected, called him when he is a little over 70 years of age from Ur of Chaldees, which is modern-day Baghdad, and he travels up to Haran. Some of his family members go with him. That's modern-day Damascus. And then he comes down into Canaan, a little south of modern-day Jerusalem. And it is there that God gives him a covenant, promises him something, and it's a fourfold covenant, that from him would uh, be a, 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 that he, a great nation would come from him, that uh, he uh, would be blessed, and that uh, from in him all nations of the world would be blessed, and that those who bless him would be blessed, and those who curse him would be cursed. That's called the Abrahamic covenant. And that becomes a theme, frankly, of all the scriptures. In fact, you could sort of see it as the thread that ties everything together in the scriptures, that God gave God's word to Abraham, and God's going to fulfill that. And Abraham accepts that. Why did he pick Abraham? Was he particularly righteous? Nothing is told. It is said that he was wealthy, but that really doesn't come into play very much. Evidently, even though this is not spelled out, he had the character that could respond. Rather phenomenal that he did, but he had the character. And he is a moon worshiper. That's what they did in the Ur of Chaldees. They worshiped the moon. And God selected Abraham out of all the people in the world and gave this promise to. And our story starts with that. He responds to this in obedience. And you know, the, uh, he's an old man at this time, 75 years old. Sarah's probably about 10 years older. She's 65. They're childless. So how is he going to have a great nation come from him if he is childless? But that's the promise, that he will have a child, and from that child will come numerous, numerous other people. Well, as the story goes, uh, they indeed remain childless, and um, Sarah, and I'll come back to this story a little bit later, feeling inadequate, maybe shamed as a woman, not being able to give birth, uh, makes a bargain with uh, Abraham to take her maidservant, Hagar, a much, much younger woman, an Egyptian, and Abraham does, and she conceives. And like I said, I'm going to come back to that story, and gives birth to Ishmael. So Abraham has a son now, but not from his wife, Sarah, but from the maidservant, Hagar. And then later on, as you know, Abraham does give birth, Abraham and Sarah, to Isaac, who is the covenant child, the promised child. And it's not much longer. Sometimes, I mean, some people think it's about 12 years after Isaac's death. It could have been up to 30 years after Isaac's death, and I'll try to explain why that's in there. There's some ambiguity about that in just a minute. That same voice that called him out of the Ur of Chaldees calls him to take his son Isaac to go to Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him. And Abraham does. He doesn't argue, doesn't bargain, doesn't negotiate, doesn't scream and holler with God. That's exactly what he does. And as he's going up the hill, Isaac asks Abraham, where's the sacrificial animal? And Abraham quickly says, God will provide. And the story is, and I'm going to show you some pictures of this in just a minute. As he's raising the knife to kill his only son, the same voice speaks to him and says, Now I know that you believe in me. And it was a test. God wanted to find out if Abraham really was a man of faith. 
And then after that, Sarah dies. Abraham lives another 38 years, and he remarries and has six children. And then he too dies at the age of 175 years old and is buried next to Sarah in a cave in uh, the cave of Machpelah, which was owned by a Hittite named Ephon, which is in modern-day Hebron. I've actually been to it, in fact. I, it was a great day that we went when we went to Hebron. Just quickly, um, Hebron is primarily an Arab Muslim city. Oh, I don't know, maybe 40,000, 45,000. It's, it's poor. It's bustling, though, a lot of activity. And in the middle of it is a Jewish settlement. And if you know much about the history of that area, there's been some horrible, horrible carnage. There are, first of all, some Muslims on Jews, and then an American Jew who settled there uh, uh, went into the mosque and slaughtered a lot of Muslims while they were in prayer. And so that place is heavily guarded. And the only time, I, I think I alluded to this, that I uh, spent a semester in Jerusalem, four and a half months there. And we, the only time I felt any kind of strain a doubt about the situation and I went all over the West Bank from the north to the south I went into Egypt of course went all over Jerusalem into Bethlehem Jericho uh, was there at Hebron it was so heavily guarded but anyway it was a church and then when Islam came in they knocked down the church and built a mosque and then in the 1967 war yes 67 war when the Israeli army took that from Jordan they split it between a synagogue and a mosque. You can go on both sides, the synagogue and the mosque, and look through these windows and see the shrines of the patriarchs and the matriarchs, where Abraham and Sarah are buried, Isaac and Rebekah, and Leah and Jacob are buried there. Hence, it's called the shrines of the patriarchs. It was a, it was a very moving experience to go there. Anyway, this is where he dies at the age of 175. What I want to do, though, is to look at four events in Abraham's life and ask the question, what did this do to him? How was he responding to these, what I call, grievous events that happened to him? And they are indeed very, very grievous. The first one shows up in chapter 15 in Genesis. Now, God had already given him the promise, the fourfold covenant in chapter 12, and in chapter 15, God says to Abraham that he wanted Abraham to have a special kind of a liturgy to commemorate the covenant that he had given Abraham. And so Abraham divides these animals up, passes through them, and as he's waiting to hear back from God, we're not really told how long he's waiting, but he gets sleepy and he's afraid. He had been chasing off the vultures and the birds of prey that were coming down to eat the sacrificed animals, and he was thinking that maybe God had forgotten him. And so in that, he falls asleep. And it says that during this sleep, uh, I'll start with verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. This was his name before chapter 17 when God changed it to Abraham. And a deep, terrifying darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet 
complete. What a dream he must have had. God speaks to him here in this dream and tells him that you'll have descendants just like I promised you and there'll be a nation, numerous as the stars, and they will live in an alien land and they'll be slaves for 400 years. Now think about that. What if somebody came and told you 25 years from now, 50 years from now, 75, 100 years from now, your descendants are going to end up being enslaved. That is, what you start today in having this child will end up in the slavery of thousands and thousands of people. And slavery is not an easy life. Poverty, oppression, injustices, cruelty, violence upon them. Abraham was going to give birth to people who will suffer unimaginably so. Quite honestly, if, if God came to me and said, Dennis, tell you what, I'll let you know what's going to happen in the next 10 years. Do you want to know what's, what's going to happen in the next 10 years? I would say, no, I don't want to know what's going to happen in the next 10 years. I don't want to know it. You know, God forbid something horrible, I can't even imagine, I won't even say it could happen. We don't know, but Abraham now knows that he's going to give birth to a people who will be enslaved and many of them will die cruelly savagely oppressed because they'll be slaves in an alien land. And it says that was a terrifying nightmare to Abraham. A darkness came upon him realizing what was going to happen. Now, of course, God will redeem these people. And as we know, this is a reference to uh, the Israelites being taken into captivity and slavery in Egypt. And they eventually, by Moses, are liberated from that. But all the sorrow, all the pain that results what Abraham must have done. This kind of grief must have been heavy upon him, realizing that he was, because of what he was trying to be faithful to, God had promised him, numerous people would come from you, he was going to give his life, his heart, his mind, all to that kind of promise that God, that immeasurable suffering would come into people's life. Must have been horrible anguish and grief for him to realize that that would happen because of his faith. But he does it. The second major anguishing event, grievous occurrence in his life, happens with Hagar and Ishmael. It is, it is a strange story, you have to admit. God doesn't tell Sarah or Abraham to take Hagar. Sarah, feeling that she's inadequate, wants her husband somewhat to have an ancestor, and so gives him this, this younger woman, Hagar. And immediately she conceives. Well, in her pregnancy, Sarah becomes incredibly wrathful and jealous towards her and runs her off. And she runs off and uh, she's crying and, and wailing because she's pregnant. She's alone out in the wilderness. This is near um, uh, uh, Beersheba, near Beersheba, which is kind of southwest of Jerusalem. And God speaks to her, says, where have you come from? Why are you, why are you feeling this way? And Hagar tells God that she, she has been banished. And God makes a promise to her. God makes a promise to her and says, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will so greatly multiply your offspring. Now this is God speaking to Hagar that they cannot be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Now you have conceived and shall bear a son. You shall call him Ishmael, for the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He shall be a wild ass of a man with his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he shall live at odds with all his kin. So she named the Lord who spoke to her, You are El Roi, God the King. For she said, Have I really seen God remained alive after seeing him? 
She is one of the few people as recorded in Scripture. Now this is Hagar, an Egyptian, maidservant, seeing God. God speaks to her, gives her a promise that he will protect her. Is he speaking to her directly or is there an angel? Through an angel. Therefore the well was called Ber Lahroha. It lies between Kadesh and Barnu. She sees a well there and she names it. It's called the God who, the, yeah, the living God who sees me. That's the name of the well, the living God who sees me. So this is a special place because God had spoken directly to Hagar and said, I will be with you. Now she returns, she submits to Sarah. Then the next thing we find out that Sarah is pregnant with, Ish, with Isaac and they give birth and eventually though the animosity, the jealousy, the envy, whatever arises and Sarah's wrath is kindled against Hagar and Ishmael again and she goes to Sarah, Abraham and says I won't tolerate this anymore. Sarah had gotten mad at Abraham for doing what Sarah had told him to do and that was to take her maidservant. This was not an amicable kind of contract that they came up with. It was one out of desperation. It's what people do sometimes in order to move their life ahead, to try to realize something they felt like their goal and their promised life. And it was an act of desperation, Sarah and Abraham's. And it did not work out amicably between them. And so there was not only animosity between Sarah and Hagar, but also Sarah and Abraham because of this. And so she goes to Abraham and says, I'm not tolerating this. You need to banish them. And that's exactly what he does. He banishes them. He sends Hagar and Ishmael out. It is said several times, though, that Abraham loved Ishmael. He was Abraham's son, his first loved son. And evidently they had some affection and closeness to that. And to banish Ishmael must have been a grievous thing for him. Interestingly, though, Ishmael returns back to Bir Lahahroa. That's where God spoke to Hagar and promised that he would protect her. This becomes then that special area just for Hagar and Ishmael. Ishmael lives in that area and Hagar, we don't know what happens with Hagar after this by the way, except for it is said that she got Ishmael an Egyptian wife because she was Egyptian, but they live in this area and it is mentioned that Hagar roamed around in that area down in what's called the Negev Desert which is southern Israel down into perhaps into the Sinai, which is obviously part of Egypt. So that was all of his area down in there. So, I uh, don't really know. I'm thinking he's probably around 30 years old or mid-20s. Yeah. Now, th th there's some ambiguity about that. He could have been 15, he could have been 30. I think he's closer to 30. And once again, I'll explain why I think that in just a minute. So here is... Sarah and Abraham's life taking off in this area. Here is Hagar and Ishmael taking off in this area. I think Abraham never forgot about Ishmael. Never did. This was his loved son, and he had to banish him in order to fulfill the promise that God had given to him and Sarah. Why did he listen to Sarah in the first place? Well, we could... I could turn that into a humorous story. <laughs> he, I guess he liked Egyptian women or something. Uh, well, I, I'll theologize about that. Pharaoh, good question. And I, I think that shows something about Abraham. 
he, in his own heart, even though he had heard it from God in his head, hadn't become quite convinced how God was going to do it. So he took it into his own hands to do so. You see kind of a parallel with the, uh, the Eden story. Yeah, God that's right. Told Adam, gave him and he took it in his own hands. And then he, that's right. He that. Abraham, though he trusted God at the initial calling, and he becomes the father of faith because of that. But he had, and here's my point, he had to learn the appropriate wisdom to be the person of faith that he was called to be. He had to learn to be the father of faith. It didn't come naturally or easy. Even though he might have had the natural talents, intellect, strength of will, and, and health, but he had to learn it in his will. And that's what we see as happening with Abraham. And at that point, with Hagar, he didn't. And he created a situation in which Ishmael was born, whom he loves, and he has to banish Ishmael. And as we know, if you know much about this, the genealogy of the scripture, the Arab people come from Ishmael, and the conflict between the descendants of Isaac and the descendants of Ishmael remain with us today. And some of that we could say, of course this is speculative, but is because Abraham and Sarah decided to take this into their own hands. Well, this is a famous painting of Abraham here banishing Hagar and Ishmael. Of course, that's Renaissance painting, but obviously they did look that way 4,000 years ago. But nonetheless, it sees Ishmael crying, and that's primarily the, the reason why I picked this, uh, why I got this particular painting. It was grievous on Ishmael. They loved each other. Ishmael must have loved his father, and vice versa. But Abraham had to do something here to learn what it meant to really trust in the promises of God. And it caused misery for other people. The first grief, he has this dream, terrible dream, that his faithfulness will cause misery for other people. Here, his mistake in trying to fulfill the promises based on his own term causes misery in other people. The third grievous Incident. And this is one of the most famous, and this is picked up a number of times, by the way, throughout Scripture. It's referred to at least twice, right now I can think of. Paul picks this up in Galatians, the book of Hebrews has it, uh, the book of James three times, I think. I, I could be wrong. This incident of Abraham here sacrificing Isaac uh, is brought up three different times. Well, Isaac is born. It's a glorious occasion. And... Uh, Ishmael and Hagar are gone, and so it's just Sarah, Abraham, and Isaac. The covenant is being fulfilled. Then all of a sudden, the same voice that spoke to him at Ur, spoke to him in the covenant giving, spoke to him there at the sacrifices, at the dream, speaks to him again and says, you are to take your son, and you are to sacrifice him. And so Abraham gets a servant to go with him. They get a donkey, and they walk off to Moriah. Now, Moriah is probably on the east side of the River Jordan, on the east side of the River Jordan. And it is there that as they're going up, Isaac is carrying the wood for the sacrificial fire. Abraham tells the servant to stay at the bottom of the mountain. They're going up, and Isaac says, where's the ram? And Abraham turns quickly to, to Isaac and says in Hebrew, Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. God will provide. Isaac doesn't say anything. Abraham doesn't say anything more. And they go up, they make an altar, put the wood on it, he binds Isaac, and he lifts the knife. You see him 
uh, this is even a, more of a dramatic painting of it. He has the knife up in the air, and then God speaks again to him. I'm going to read that. <clears throat> then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to kill his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, not Ishmael, Isaac is the covenant child, from me. And Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, The Lord will provide, Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord it will be provided. What had he learned? Now he had been hearing the voice of God now for years. What had he learned? He took in his own hands, and I'm going to come back and tell you another incident in which he took in his own hands, how to fulfill the promise, and it ended up a, a disastrous wreck. But there with Hagar and Ishmael, it ended up being a miserable consequence when he took it in his own What had he learned? And as the, as the verse says, he feared God. He realized that the promises that God had given him, God will find a way to fulfill those promises. Some way or another, God will work through the incidences of history and his own failures to be able to bring about this great blessing for the whole world. That God's providence is God's and it's not our providence. That's what he had learned. So what he didn't learn with Hagar and Ishmael, in the process somehow or another, he had learned there at Mount Moriah, and that is to fear God. However, though, the consequences of this were devastating. Now, there's a lot of gaps, as you know, in Scripture, silent parts. It's conjecture at best sometimes to try to read into those parts of Scripture that, that is not talking about. But from this point on, we hear of no word exchanged between Isaac and Abraham. The very next verse after this chapter, we find out that Sarah dies at the age of 127. This is why I think probably in that previous... Hold on a second. He looks like a young boy there. Uh, that if he were 12, a good number of years would have passed in between that sacrifice and then the death of Sarah. But that's a gap there between chapters 22 and 23. And I think that, frankly, he's probably a 30-year-old man when this sacrifice occurs because that then would line up with the age of Sarah dying at 127, roughly about 127. But how could he bind a 30-year-old man if he's 100? Well... <laughs> You know, quite honestly, we don't hear Isaac, we don't we don't hear anything from Isaac prior to this, and not a voice is given to Isaac after this as well. And also, again, the scripture is silent, and it's speculating to try to think what was going on in this period. There's not a word exchanged between Sarah and Abraham after this either. Now let's just think. What if your mate got one of your children? or one of your grandchildren and said, I'm going to sacrifice this baby, this child, this grown man, 
because God has told me. Would you settle peacefully with that? Would you say, oh yeah, that makes perfectly good sense. I understand why you're doing that. Isaac must have been traumatized. Even if he believed that Abraham had good reasons for this, even if he understood what Abraham said when he said Jehovah Jireh, it must have been an unbelievably traumatic experience to go through. Even if he thought God somehow or another would work it out. Now when the book of Hebrews spends almost a whole chapter here on Abraham, about half a chapter, about being the father of faith, it mentions this and it says that Abraham believed that God would raise Isaac from the dead. Some way or another, in developing the fear of the Lord, in knowing that somehow God would work out God's providence, that even if he had killed Isaac, God would raise Isaac because God promised him that a numerous people would come from him. Even the impossible wouldn't be possible for God. But it must have created unbelievable anguish in Abraham to realize this. He had banished one son, and he had tried to kill another. What's interesting to me is when you look at these different relationships in this story, that Abraham has this relationship with his wife, he has a relationship with his child, and he has this relationship with God. And for him to act in the way, at least in this part of the story, his relationship with God had to be so far beyond... At this point in the story, it is. That's right. It might not have been that way when he had... um, Hagar. Hagar. But for a father to do this kind of thing, that... He must believe... It had to have been something hard to describe. Uh, in, in just a minute I'll come to this he says to Sarah back in chapter uh, 18 something very significant to this point that he is beginning to learn then but fully learns here and that is God can do the impossible in order to fulfill the promise that God had given what seems impossible for him is a possibility for God and God would fulfill it because God gave a promise but anyway how would you feel that if in your conscience you did something that you knew your very soul depended on and that you knew it was from God but it had created such anguish in the people whom you love more than your own life how would you handle that? how would you deal with such a conflict in your own soul? that's not the only grievous experience he goes through as I've already mentioned uh, Sarah dies in the next chapter and Abraham is in the Hebron area that was occupied by the Hittites and he buys a cave called the Cave of Machpelah and has Sarah buried there. And I'm thinking, again, this is a silent part of scripture. I'm speculating, but I think it helps us understand the, uh, the, the depth of the fear of God that Abraham had. As he is at her funeral, so to speak, I found this etching of them taking Sarah's body into the cave of Machpelah. He must have thought what grief he brought into her life. And he thought he was doing the right thing all along. When he took Hagar, he probably thought in his own mind, this is the right thing. We have to have a child. You know, I'm well over 100. Sarah's well over 90. 
He thought he was doing the right thing all the time, but he brought tremendous grief in the world. We know from the dream that a whole nation would be brought into slavery. We know that Sarah, I mean, excuse me, Hagar and Ishmael are banished to wander around in the desert, the wilderness, and we know that his own wife feels betrayed. And she was betrayed by him. There is this rather sordid story uh, about the King Ambalek of Gerar, G-E-R-A-R. They're passing through the area, and he sees Sarah. Now, she, she is well up. Oh, by this time, she's in her 80s, and he wants her. He's lustful towards her, and goes up to Abraham and says, well, to paraphrase, can I have this woman? Now, that's Abraham's wife. That's to be the mother of the covenant child. That's to be the one from which the blessing of the world will come. And what does Abraham do? Sure, you can have her. She's my sister. Oh, God. <laughs> He's afraid that the king, Amalek, perhaps at that moment a little more powerful, would have taken his life in order to get his wife. Well, Amalek has a dream that night, and God speaks to him and says, if you take this woman, a plague is going to come on you, and all your people, if you take this woman, because she is another man's wife. Well, he wakes up the next morning and goes and accost Abraham for doing what he did. You know, how dare you act this way? We could all die because of your cowardice. Now, there's nothing recorded by what Sarah said to Abraham, but any of you women want to speak on her behalf? <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously this wasn't a win. Well, that's right. I know that the women were put down and were thought of as second-rate people in that culture at that time. Right. But it still, they have the same emotions. <clears throat> oh, exactly, exactly. And uh, here I am thinking <laughs> that Abraham is there at the funeral of his wife, the mother of the covenant child Isaac and must have thought, I did her wrong. I didn't treat her well. I harmed her. I created shame. And it must have been shameful on her to be treated in such a flippant, disrespectful way. I was not a good husband to her. And it must have been anguishing for him to do that. And there he was, an old man. Uh, he's 137 when she dies. And he's, she's buried there at the cave of Machpelah. Now he goes on and he... Um, he marries after this Keturah and has six more children and at the age of 175 instead of being buried with his wife and six children he decides to be buried with Sarah and so they take him back and guess who comes to the funeral we haven't heard anything from Isaac or Ishmael they're both there now again reading between the lines I know this is dangerous to do sometimes or questionable to do at times, but I think there is some legitimacy in this to try to understand why is he the father of faith here? What did he have to go through to prove that he is indeed the model for faith for us? That I don't think there was any relationship between Isaac and Abraham, Ishmael and Abraham, but when he dies, they come to the funeral and they're there to honor the man because he had learned what it meant to be a man of faith. And not much else is said about Isaac, frankly, uh, of all the patriarchs, you know, Jacob follows, and then Joseph and the brothers follow. Less is known about Isaac than anything else, but of the last recorded conversation in the scripture about Isaac, he mentions Abraham. 
he talks about his father. Some way or another, Isaac too had become a man of faith and he realized that through all these missteps, wrong-headed moves, accidents, failures, weaknesses of his own father, nonetheless, the hand of God was moving through all this and Isaac too met that God, I mean, Isaac too learned that God will fulfill the promise that God had given in the covenant. And also prior to this, when Isaac shows up, he, founds, he finds out that Abraham had given to Isaac all of his property and wealth. And there they were at the funeral witnessing how a man had learned to properly die. I think what we can learn from Abraham, oh, I wonder, this is the mosque and the uh, synagogue where the shrines of the patriarchs and matriarchs are. That building was built by Herod the Great, by the way, a little, over two, a little less than 2,000 years ago. And it is, it's almost stone per stone. It's one of the most remarkable buildings I've ever seen. Anyway, th this area right here was what Herod the Great built. And he is buried there to this day with his wife, Sarah. Okay, here's what I think we can learn from this in the art of dying. All the mistakes he had made, all the anguish that he experienced, the grief that he felt and that he also caused would turn a person into kind of a cynical, bitter old person. As they approach their death, they think, what a, what a mistake my life has been. I have failed with my wife, with my sons. I am bringing misery in the world. What a mistake my life has been. And I could see somebody coming to that conclusion. You know, we all have had enough mistakes in our lives, and if we haven't, we will to think maybe my life wasn't all that important to begin with. Maybe there's not a grand story that's running through me some way or another. There are probably enough mistakes in our lives for all of us in some way or another to become cynical or bitter about it. But he doesn't. He doesn't. He is able to transform his shame and anguish into hope. And it's the hope that God will fulfill God's promise through his life. Something else I think he learns. Every time we saw that Abraham tried to take it in as his own plans and will and strength to bring about the covenant, it failed miserably. First of all, with the, the unfortunate thing with Hagar, then with this unfortunate thing with the king of Abelak. Every time he did what he thought it would take for God to fulfill God's promises in his life, he failed at doing that. And so what I think he learned in the process, that the promise that God gave him was bigger than just his personal happiness. That what God promised him with the covenant was not that you'll have a life of ease. It'll all make perfectly good sense to you. And that you'll see that everything was wonderful and beautiful and so that's not what God promised him. God did not promise him a Shangri-La utopian life. What God promised him was that through him would come the blessing of the world. And what Abraham learned as he grew older, as he approached his own death, that it's not about him. He's not the center of God's will, of God's providence, that he is a means towards the redemption of the world. And that's real wisdom. And the wisdom of Abraham is to know that what works through our lives, even when we have brought such anguish and, and bitterness in our own lives by the mistakes that we commit. 
nonetheless there's a story bigger than our own lives working its way through us and we can believe in that that even though I may make mistakes as he did and anguishing mistakes do nonetheless God's promise will work its way through them and so in the art of dying I'll summarize with this and then if you have questions is that we need to be able to transform our mistakes our grief our shame into hope in what God can do secondly we need to be able to see by learning from great people like Abraham and Sarah and so on and in our own lives that the hand of God is moving redemptive purposes through us and that we're part of a bigger story we are not the center of that story we're all part of God's covenant and so we wait then just as Paul says whether we live or whether we die we are the Lord's we wait for the Lord to use us in ways to bring about that story all right, we've got a couple more minutes before I need to stop. Yes? Don't you think, to me, the, the more I read about Abraham, it reminds me almost of Peter, uh, in the sense that uh, they are, you think of them as rocks, and uh, the father of the faith, but they're really <coughs> broken vessels. Every, t- every time Abraham tries to get out of a problem on his own, we always go the wrong way. Right. Right. Twice, twice, you know, identifying Sarah as his sister, you know, giving up on God's promise with Hagar. <coughs> the same with Peter, you know, uh, with denying Christ three times. And I think it's what Paul says that you know his faith was counted to him. Right. That is, he was there not because of his own actions, but because God had chosen him for whatever reason. And I find a lot of comfort in that. Oh, why? Exactly. How terrible I am that maybe God has something in store for me too. And and so I always, in the same way with Peter, I find great comfort in their failures because I relate to them. Right. Another great thing that Paul said in 2 Corinthians is that we have this treasure in earthen vessels. We are earthen vessels. Abraham, the father of our faith. I mean, look at how many people in the world know Abraham. Jews, Christians, and Muslims nonetheless was an earthen vessel. However, though, we are still commanded to do as best as we can. But you may think this sounds overly clever to say it this way. Perfection is overrated. It really is. That is, we have to be perfect to be means by which God can use to work out God's providence. The irony of so much of Scripture is that even our imperfections, being earthen vessels, this treasure is held. And God's providence works even through some of the mistakes. And the wisdom that we need to learn is not to see us. Because frankly, I could either be deluded about how great I was, or I could be totally cynical about how bad I am. Each response is the inappropriate response. The proper response is that through our lives we should sense this bigger story being unfolded, and that's, that's God fulfilling the, God's promises. Now I will admit, that's probably easier for me to accept whenever I die. I can think of other people like my children that would be harder, much, much harder to accept. And so maybe, maybe let me say this, maybe all of us, and God forbid that this happens, will have a Mount Moriah experience. Maybe you've had one. And you have to learn Jehovah Jireh as well. And that's the real art of dying there. Speaking of Abraham and what happened when he takes things into his own hands, 
there is a book out now called Yahweh is a Warrior and how he always came to the rescue of his people but it was by his spirit not with weapons of war and this guy points out as I tell some people I finally found a book that takes God off the hook for all the violence in the Old Testament he points out over and over and over in this book how it was when the Jewish people took things in their own hands after God had performed a miracle that you got violence. They were trying to do it their way. Right, right. And of course he warned right. about trying to go the way of the nations That's right. rather exactly. than the way of Yahweh. Yeah. I think you're right. Look, our time is up. Um, I'll see you next Sunday. I may talk about Moses, but I know I'm going to talk some about St. Francis and probably Pascal and what we can learn from them. All right, go in peace, and I'll see you next week.